You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles and we'll read three passages from the Gospel according to Matthew. Our first passage is from Matthew chapter 7. We'll read verse 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Let's turn to Matthew 18, the verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven, For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Now we turn ahead to chapter 25, where we read the parable of the ten virgins or the ten young maidens. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. While they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. This afternoon, I bring you the gospel regarding the keys of the kingdom, as they're called. We then, therefore, turn to Lord's Day 31 of our Hallelujah Catechism and read that Lord's Day together. What are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? the preaching of the Holy Gospel, and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is opened to believers and closed 
to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits as often as they, by faith, accept the promise of the Gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rests on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the Gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. How is the kingdom of heaven closed and opened by church discipline? According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments and they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God Himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, how many people have a key to the front door of your house? If you're the owner, you have a key. Parents will have a key. Maybe one or two of their children have a key. Your neighbor has a key in case anything goes wrong when you're away. But no one else, or hardly anyone else, would defeat the purpose of a key, of course, to just give it to one and all. Anyone could come tramping through your house at any time of day, raid the fridge, leave a mess, and be on their way. Would you like having an elevator open into your living room every hour? When I was little, I always admired people who had lots of keys. I recall a bus driver who had a special ring of keys. It must have been five or six inches round hanging on his loop. And I was absolutely astonished just to think that he knew what every single key was for. I'm not sure anymore that he did. But keys are a sign of power. They're a sign that either you own something or you have access to something. You've been entrusted with access. And some keys hold secrets. Well, in the church we also speak of keys because the Lord Jesus did. The keys of the kingdom. And that's not really a sign that the church owns anything. These are the keys that have been entrusted to the church by the rightful owner, Jesus Christ. He told His disciples, it was in Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And that same concept, though it doesn't have the word keys, is found in Matthew 18 and elsewhere. So it's all about access to the kingdom of heaven. The Lord Jesus has given His church a role to play in this matter, as we will see. Yet we must also remember that He has given us a trust. 
he himself actually has the authority of the keys. He alone is the one who has opened the door of heaven for sinners like us to enter. The church has been entrusted with the task of declaring to the world what the Lord Jesus has done to open the door. And through this message that the church brings, the occasion is given for people to either accept or reject this message. To enter or not. And so I may preach the Gospel. Jesus Christ has opened the door of heaven for sinners like us to enter. In the first place, walk in while the door is open. It's the Gospel call, brothers and sisters. Walk in while the door is open. And secondly, be a gentleman. Keep the door open for everyone else. And in the third place, don't wait to knock on a locked door. So Jesus Christ has opened the door of heaven for sinners like us to enter. First of all, walk in while the door is open. Our Lord Jesus told His disciples to go to all nations and to preach the Gospel of the Kingdom and He promised to be with the church who does this. And He would be with such a church, He said, to the very end of the age. And that would be the church's task to the end of the age. And because of His presence with in the church, He could also declare this to His disciples who then were the church's leaders, if you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. Now we can also read about the Pharisees muttering against Jesus and saying, well, who can forgive sins but God alone? That happened when Jesus had just forgiven the sins of a paralytic who had been lowered through the roof by his friends. It was the most amazing moment in the man's life. This teacher who So much work had been done to to get the paralytic in front of him and the teacher said, Son, your sins are forgiven. The man just suddenly, his heart sprung into freedom and joy. But the Pharisees were right. Who could forgive sins but God alone? And their point of stumbling was that they refused to believe that Jesus Christ was God Himself in the flesh, their promised Messiah. He could forgive sins. Legally, rightfully, perfectly, and fully. And He did. When Jesus the Christ tells you that your sins have been washed away, they are gone. Be assured. But then if only God can forgive sins, and Jesus can because He's one with God, He's also God, then how could the Lord Jesus carry this on to His disciples who clearly are not divine and say to them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. That's God's prerogative and He's giving it over to them. Well, it's the fact that it's God's prerogative that gives such preaching to the teaching, or such, such importance to the teaching that He entrusted the keys to His church for us to use. Could God ever have given us a greater responsibility? No one in the world has ever spoken more powerful words than to say, Son, all thy sins have been forgiven thee. 
Well, what does the preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ do every single Sunday? Doesn't it do that very thing? Isn't it supposed to do that very thing? Shouldn't there be a Gospel proclamation of amnesty and forgiveness with God every Sunday? What do we confess? According to the command of Christ, the Kingdom of Heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits as often as they, by true faith, accept the promise of the Gospel. And the promise is forgiveness. So every time Christ is preached, the Kingdom of Heaven is opened and poor sinners are invited to sit with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob in the Kingdom of Heaven. And that declaration, those words, that's the turning of a key. It's the opening of a door. This declaration opens opens the door that allows us entry into the Kingdom of Heaven. We do not even need to knock, much less to open the door. Jesus Christ Himself has opened the door. Listen to what John was commanded to write to the church of Philadelphia in the book of Revelation. These are the words of Him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What He opens, turns the key, opens the door. No one can shut. And what He shuts, no one can open. There's the warning. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you, the church, an open door that no one can shut. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, you enter through the door as often as you hear the Lord Jesus Christ preached and you believe in Him. The King of the church has put before you an open door that no one can shut. Walk in the door while it is open. That's the preaching. And really the same message is proclaimed through the sacraments. The Lord of the covenant says that He died for all your sins on the cross. He gives you water, bread, and wine to assure you, make you more certain. What does He tell you but that the kingdom of heaven is open to all those who are truly sorry for their sins? It's repeated over and over so that no one will miss it. What a privilege we have. The world, all the false religions, and Satan keeps saying, you have to work for this. You have to work for this. And Jesus Christ comes back with the Gospel Sunday by Sunday and says, I worked for it. Your sins have been forgiven in My powerful death on the cross. Believe in Me. I'm holding before you an open door that no one can shut. And so Jesus Christ is saying He's more powerful than Satan who had slammed the door shut long ago. He's more powerful than our own sins by which we had perfectly sealed that door shut. Jesus Christ opened it and He is holding it open for as long as the message of grace is proclaimed. The preaching of the Gospel comes through the sermons and through the sacraments both. We highlight the preaching in this discussion because it holds far more power than the sacraments. It is more necessary. We should remember that the sacraments always have the Word with them too. The sacraments can only be received for our benefit when they are received in faith, just like the preaching of the Gospel. 
let each and every one of us walk through the door while it remains open. Do not let yourself look on the outside of this assembly only. Don't be left behind. Come with us all through the door and into the kingdom of God where there is joy. Indeed, truly, when they are walking in faith and in hope and in love, then the people in this kingdom are joyful. They're friendly. They're all cleansed. They're all purified. They have a a new lease on life. And we all sit at table with the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so, brothers and sisters, the call is laid upon you through the preaching of the Gospel. Lord's Day 31 is so clear about that. That you must make a decisive choice in your life. God made the decisive choice of bringing the Gospel to you, calling you. Probably almost everyone here received holy baptism. God was calling you. And He expects that your response comes from the heart, from the heart that He made. A heart that He made to respond to Him. So do not wait. Do not waver. Don't wander and try other things. But by true faith, accept that Jesus Christ has died for you and has opened the door for you to be with God forever. In the second place, keep the door open for everyone else. One of the airports that I've frequently had to use requires that, say you're arriving, you're going to depart, I should say. You come to the airport and then you're going to depart on a plane. You drop off your luggage and then you have to follow... Uh, you have to go to one of three concourses to board your plane. In order to get there, you take a subway. It stops at each of the three concourses. Now, besides being very fast moving, this subway also expects the passengers to load and unload quickly. And when this doesn't happen, a loud recorded voice interrupts rudely. Please move away from the doorway. You are delaying this train. Now, if we were to think of the kingdom of heaven, it seems to me it would be more fitting, more appropriate to think of getting in an elevator. When the elevator doors are open and someone enters, they often look around to see if anyone else is coming. There might be someone running down the hallway trying to catch the elevator. They're in a rush. So the person inside just holds the doors for a moment and keeps them open. And someone else may be shuffling along, taking a little longer with their walker. Once again, the doors can simply be held open so that this person can come in too. And you can just keep holding those doors open if you wish until the elevator is full. And this is more like the way to think of how we enter into the kingdom of heaven. We don't enter alone We're not rudely interrupted for being, let's say, a bit slow. Rather, we hold the door open for everyone else in order that as many as possible may enter. And I am, of course, referring to our mutual faith and our mutual obligations. So I'm not alone, thank God, as an unbeliever. And you are not alone as an unbeliever. And the declaration of forgiveness is not given to me alone 
or to you alone, but to all of us assembled as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ with the instituted offices and those who are officially called to do this work. And so we don't walk through the door alone, but with the church of Jesus Christ. And we care that some are shuffling slowly. We care that some are trying to find a wrong door, a different door. And we must care that some have stopped caring that the door is open. They're indifferent. No, our concern is that all must come in. Especially our brothers and sisters who have been baptized. And so I refer to our obligation to mutually admonish each other. When a brother errs, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens, you've gained your brother and he walks through the door with you. If he does not listen, then get someone else who will help you hold open the door. And if he listens, then both of you will have gained your brother back to the faith and he walks through the door with the two of you. If he does not listen, then get the whole church to hold the door open to him. Have the office bearers come and hold the door open through their admonitions. And if the office bearers also do not see results, then let them call on all the church to join in their prayers that this door may be held open and that the sinner may walk in. But you realize that finally in the end, if he or she does not listen, then finally the elevator may have to take everyone else and leave that one behind. And that's the saddest moment when the most powerful words in heaven and on earth, forgiveness of sins from a holy God, when they're rejected. When that happens, then the words of the Gospel and the words of church discipline are exactly the same. The kingdom of heaven is closed. The door is closed when it's proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. That's a truth also by which God will judge forever. God will judge according to this truth both in this life and in the life to come. On the judgment day, He will speak to you according to whether you entered the open door that was presented in the preaching of the Gospel. And if you didn't, then you won't be able to enter anymore later on either. Lord's Day 31 understands that there are such things as hypocrites. People who go through the motions, who come to church for various reasons, but not for the right reason, not from the heart. And the people of God also need to be warned that... God's wrath is upon those who come for wrong reasons. God doesn't tell you stop coming and go away. He says change your heart. Hear my Gospel and come for the right reasons. And so we take it to be our duty and our obligation and our deepest concern that we should hold the door open for everyone else. Let them come in. And now, Practically speaking, how do we know we're doing the right thing? How do we know that our words, our actions are keeping the door open the way that God wants us to? 
What if someone has turned away and doesn't even want to come in at all? Is there still a sense in which we're holding the door open to them? Yes, there is. We confess they are again received as members of Christ when they promise and show real amendment. So we're always holding the door open in that sense, always calling them to repentance. But again, practically speaking, how do we know whether or not we're calling them back in the way that the Lord commands? And there's some very practical things about this in the Bible. How much do you associate with those who professed once to love Christ but turned their backs on Him? Well, we must look at the Scriptures. And the first principle is we are duty-bound to present the Gospel to whomever is not entering through the door of Jesus Christ and His forgiveness. They've got to know there is not another way to enter. Now, if they've lost interest in even wanting to enter, then we need to explain what it means that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, they need some confrontation with their own shortcomings and sin. Even God's holy wrath. Our approach for someone who has known it all and turned away will be more direct than for someone who has never known the truth. Specifically, the Lord never commanded that we could not eat with sinners, but He did write this about one from the church who refuses to repent. So Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral men, not at all meaning the immoral of this world or the greedy and robbers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to just go out of the world. No, rather, I wrote to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or robber. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? So, that's one of the messages of the New Testament. With sinners, generally speaking, do associate like the Lord Jesus did. He was even nearby tax collectors and prostitutes. Eat and drink, do business, evangelize. But there's still another text that you shouldn't be unequally yoked with unbelievers so you don't form these deep, abiding uh, relationships. Business relationships where you might be partners with an unbeliever. That's going to be a very difficult thing. I wonder if the Lord really wants us to do that. And obviously, relationships leading to marriage? No. Don't be unequally yoked. We can't because we don't share the deepest things. We live in the world, but we don't form those relationships. But then, the text of 1 Corinthians 5 that we read says that with hardened, unrepentant, excommunicated brothers or sisters, do not even associate. That's more than not being unequally yoked. There's a further thing going on here. Don't even eat with them. So, in addition to not forming and nurturing intimate friendships, business, partnerships, etc., don't even eat with them. Use the opportunities exclusively to evangelize. So they need to know this is life or death for them. 
Don't be unequally yoked, but also don't associate in this particular kind of situation. So it's more than being unequally yoked. And yet, there's still more to, to gather from Scripture here. Because within family units, this doesn't take exactly the same form as outside of family units. And we can say that because if there was a husband and wife, and the husband or the wife walked away from the Lord, according to the Apostle Paul, that does not give grounds to the believer for divorce. If that doesn't give grounds to the believer for divorce, then it also doesn't give grounds to the family whose child is turning their back on the Lord to simply say, you may never walk in this door again. You can't negate the natural relationship. It still exists. It's the blood relationship. So what do you do? Well, you recognize that the blood relationship remains and you utilize it for the sake of Christ and the sake of the sinner's salvation. Because the stronger what ought to be, brothers and sisters, more intimate spiritual bond of believers is something you no longer share with this family member. And so you use the natural bond to try and bring back the spiritual bond. So you still love a hardened family member, and that means you're seeking their conversion. And so one of the things you never do is shortchange your family um, way of life. Uh, keep the devotions really short so you don't offend someone. Never do that. Let them feel that something fundamental has been broken by them. Speak your heart. You don't have to chase them away from family gatherings unless, of course, uh, they're obstinate mockers or they might lead others astray. That's for a different reason. It's not just because they walked away. It's because of their bad influence on others. Then you may need to exclude them. But if not, then you use the gatherings to show them what they're missing, to remind them of God's call and eventually you will see they probably show up less and less because their consciences are pricked. And they don't share that deep spiritual bond. It's sad. That's how it is. So the Lord Jesus says the best way to keep the door open is to talk about the door. Jesus Christ, bring the Gospel. Speak of the need to repent. And keep that foremost. And in families, that often happens by way of example. And then the door is kept open. Now why do we do this? It's because Jesus Christ has opened the door for sinners like us. He has let us enter by faith. And we count this to be so wonderful that we want all others to enter as well. And from that foundation, we go out and we evangelize the world and we admonish those who go astray. Neither of these endeavors can be done proudly. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, including everyone who is in the kingdom. In fact, it's because of our sin that it's Christ who had to come and open the door for us. And so it's out of a profound sense of thanks to God that we are reminding others of the right way in. Humility, humility, Humility. That's what has to underlie 
our way of speaking and acting. Because the door is closed to the proud and the hypocrite. Humility from your heart. Without your heart being engaged and committed, you do not have the faith that God requires. No one can drag you into the kingdom for the door is only open to you personally when you personally believe. Although everyone is here to help you, yet you yourself must accept the promise of the Gospel. Pray to God for such a heart of acceptance and peace. He will give it by His Holy Spirit. Pray for that today if you're struggling. That you may be accepted by God into His heavenly kingdom. Pray even now for the faith that Jesus Christ has forgiven all your sins. There's amnesty proclaimed with God. And pray now that all His work may be for you also, for He is holding open the door as long as the Gospel can still be preached. While others keep it open, but that's no excuse for you to linger. And so finally we see that you shouldn't wait to knock on a locked door. Don't say, I'll take care of it tomorrow. Tomorrow may be too late. Know this, there are going to be many people for whom tomorrow will be too late. Either because they're taken out of this life, didn't expect to be, because Jesus returns. I don't know who those people are, but there's a day coming. And you won't be able to wait for the next day to repent because there will not be a next day. All those days will be over and eternity sets in. Either an eternity of darkness or an eternity of light. Jesus said, not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. So there will be all kinds in that day who claim to have done many things in the name of Jesus. And He'll say, I never knew you. Away from Me, you evildoers. Do we understand those words? That's Jesus saying, you're excommunicated. As far as I'm concerned, I never knew you at all. And away from Me, you evildoers. Now, who will these people be? who say, Lord, Lord, and get told, no, you're not my servants, not my children, not even my servants. Will they be the people of the world who scorned the Lord Jesus Christ and His church? No, not at all. These people will never claim to have done things in the name of Jesus. Then who will they be? They'll be those who are in the church, but not of the church who went through the motions but were not responding from the heart. That's who Jesus is talking about. They'll be the five virgins who did not take too much concern about the coming of the bridegroom. Again, do you think that the five foolish virgins were never in the church? Far from it. They knew that the bridegroom was coming. They were together with the five others who also knew and who were well prepared. But the five foolish virgins didn't pay enough attention to what they needed to do to prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ in the clouds of heaven. They were careless. In the parable, it seems as if they were only a little bit careless. But still, it was too much. How did Jesus conclude the parable? Therefore, 
Keep watch. Keep watch. Because you do not know the day nor the hour. Keep watch. Point of the parable is a positive command to keep watch. Don't fall into the trap of becoming careless. Use your time wisely. Get ready for His coming. How? By walking in while the door is held open. By the Gospel. By preaching and believing even as you hear the message. And as you hear the message again. Going to Jesus Christ who has opened the door for sinners like us to enter. Enter in and sit. Enter in and rest. Enter in and eat. Enter in and join the King. Such a message of hope fills us with the expectation of His coming. So rest assured that His kingdom will not fail. Even now, there are many entering in, many confirming that they belong there because they believe in Jesus Christ. So worship Him who holds the keys. Believe in Him as often as He, through His church, uses the keys to keep open the door for you. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.